What's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod, giving you another week of what's going on in pop culture. Only a few weeks left of the year. Um, I'm Patchy and joined by my co-host, Dave Martin Swagger. Dave, how are you doing today, man? I'm doing well. Heading down to our TV end of year list coming soon. Later this week, music lists already out in the bag. Movies to come as well very exciting times to rank my things yeah that that's how you know it's end of year time when you start uh ranking things because uh this is this is when you do it this is just what you do mm-hmm. in uh in december and it's, it's, habit. it's it's fun to have so many like good movies to talk about we have a, a good tv show to talk about today as well so a lot of uh a lot of good stuff happening but Before we get too far into things, if you're watching on YouTube, hit that subscribe button, youtube.com slash nostalgiapod. If you are listening on whatever platform, you can go to soundcloud.com slash nostalgiapod and find all the different ways to consume the podcast. Follow us on there too. Leave us a rating and review and also follow us on Twitter at nostalgiapod. Dave, I went to my first show, first live show since COVID broke uh so it's been I'm trying to think because i went i went to a show and and it was on leap day of 2020 so it was uh the 29th of february it was my last show covid was very much a presence people were some people were masked i remember at one point i dropped some chapstick and was just like well never gonna touch that chapstick again <sighs> they, they made sure bathrooms were already like mm. one entrance you had to go in and yeah. one you had to leave out of so some it was very present but not obviously uh to the shutdown level yet still sacrificing your chapstick like that bold yeah well you know at the time we weren't educated on what this covid uh was quite yet or at least i wasn't uh, correct more than i was so uh you know that was celine dion which is like kind of a weird like last show for me to see before, before covid i saw vampire weekend a month before and that was awesome celine dion was great but like just not totally my cup of tea what was your last show before covid ybn corday and 24k mm-hmm. golden the good one yeah around the same time corday well, switched his name since then <laughs> yeah uh yeah drop the ybn just corday but i got to see probably my favorite live band um live performance live show last night as lcd sound system is performing a 20 show residency that started back on November 23rd and is running until the 21st of December at Brooklyn Steel, which at least when it opened was uh, part owned by James Murphy. I'm not sure if he's a part owner still. I'd have to look into that more. But pretty much whenever LCD wants to play Brooklyn Steel, they just get to play as many shows as they want. And it always sells out and uh, tickets, you know, get bought out in seconds and the prices get jacked up. So it's always exciting when they come. Brooklyn Steel is a good venue to see them too because it's only about 2,000 people max. So it's a pretty intimate setting for an LCD show. It was weird. I will say that uh, being at a concert again, just kind of like, you know, some people had masks, some didn't. Some people were being respectful. Other people were very much just back to like olden times, bumping in people, didn't really care, being, you know, scallywags and whatnot. But uh Gotta say, this definitely felt like an LCD warm-up show. And I, and I only say that 
not that the show was bad. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thought the band sounded great for the most part. They played a lot of deep cuts, a couple of songs from like early records that they haven't played since like 2007. One of the songs that they're now they're playing again in live live shows. It's called On Repeat. And this is their first time performing in, in three years, these shows. So they're obviously trying to get back in shape. They've already been announced as headliners for a couple of festivals next year. So they're just trying to get back in the swing of things. Um, yeah, and yeah, they played some deep cuts, uh, which mo- a lot of people in the crowd didn't know or didn't respond to, um, at least the way that they wanted to. James Murphy at one point even said like, yeah, we're, you know, we're, we're doing a lot of shows, so we're just switching it up a little bit. You guys probably don't know these songs as well, so we're just doing it for us. And everybody's like, okay, whatever, they still sounded cool. But man, when, when LCD Sound System plays, shut, shuts up and plays the hits, uh, man, they fucking rock still. And there really is like nothing like hearing songs like All My Friends, Dance Yourself Clean, um, even songs like Daft Punk is playing at my house, just the energy that comes along with that and the whole crowd is like singing and like you can kind of feel the movement in it. It's just a a different energy and uh, really nice to have live music back. I will say, I wish they played a few less songs from their newest album, American dream, which we did review, check out that review on Spotify or on YouTube, I should say, Um, especially emotional haircut. I don't know if you remember that song, Dave, but yesterday when they played it, it all just sounded like one sound it like everything kind of blended together. I'm not sure if it was the acoustics of Brooklyn steel. Um, I don't know if it was something with the band, I guess on a couple of shows, or at least on one of the shows early on, they blew out some of their um, equipment uh, unexpectedly. So maybe they're still having some technical issues with some of the songs, but it just sounded really uncharacteristically uh, like blended together, which is not usually how I experience the LCD song. So it's a little taken aback by that, but uh, gotta say, still awesome CLC Sound System Live. If you can ever catch a show, highly recommend. Just try to get tickets right when they come out because they get jacked up quick. But yeah, yeah. Dave, in general, I've maybe this is pent up demand with COVID. I've noticed that ticket demand is high in Ticketmaster. Oh, yeah. they, they don't give a fuck if a bot buys it, they just want to sell it. So yeah, I, I heard you uh, can get those Rodrigo tickets. I no, I well, a lot of people express disappointment in Olivia Rodrigo uh, ticket availability, but she is playing smaller venues. No, yeah. I did. I struggled to get Charlie XCX tickets, and I was even like queued in the line before they went on sale and everything, and I still didn't get them. Damn, which That's was crazy, a big bummer. So probably gonna shell out um, twice as much as I I should have had to pay to see it later. So yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, that's how it works, but. Um, live music is nice to have back. Uh, people just get boosted, please. But yeah, why don't we move on from music onto something we just want to touch on real quick? The Golden Globes uh, announced their nominee nominees today nominations. Yeah. Um, we're not really going to talk too much about the nominations, I guess, so much as what do we make of the Golden Globes this year? Uh, obviously, we've talked a lot about. The issues with the Hollywood foreign press uh, accusations of racist practices, corruption. Uh, there's a lot of articles out there. You can go back and check our uh, yeah. breakouts on that. But LA Dave, what Times make big of- report, I think, really yes. shed light yeah. on it. This was like right before the last Globes happened, beginning of 2021. So people have to like, know the story at this point. But 
yeah, it is funny to see the HFPA announce nominations for the uh, forthcoming Golden Globes that apparently are happening in the beginning of January. <laughs> um, was not on my radar, was not thinking about it. I mean, we, we've long talked about how the Globes do not matter as like a body of prestige because again the awards and the nominations have so much corruption and lack of credibility associated with them especially when compared to a much larger representative body of people in the industry like the academy but it's still funny to see them announce nominations this year on a bare bones live stream with like no advertisements and really no uh star power celebrity in the mix apart from i believe snoop dogg was involved yeah. on the mic but like yes that seemed, check yeah snoop, snoop gets paid to do a lot of stuff these days good for him i guess uh, but yeah I, it's, it's, I guess it's just a continuity play right they're hoping that in the future they can get back on tv nbc has dropped them for this year and they just nominate people on their own no one had to submit it did seem like all the studios weren't going to bother submitting uh, based on what they had said when all the um, things got blown up beginning of this year. So will they come back to the fore with participation from talent in 2023? Who can say, but this is basically what they're trying to do to, to, to at least have that option. So are, are you even like going to pay attention to what comes out of the globes this year? Or is it just kind of like, doesn't matter to you at all? No, I mean, in general, I would always pay attention just as like, not that it's an Oscar predictor, but it can, in a sense, the conversation. Yeah, influence opinion, because it is a relatively popular award show as far as award show popularity goes, you know, when people would go, they would be looser, they'd be drunker, just be a better like TV experience. And there also would be crazy noms, obviously, with like the drama and comedy categories, TV's there too, you know, everyone knows. So, yeah, I think in general, like, it doesn't seem like anyone's going to acknowledge it this year. So I feel like paying attention to it is just kind of irrelevant. Yeah, it's pointless. I felt the same way. And, you know, even just looking at the nominations, I was just kind of like, ah, it's cool to see people I like nominated. But what does this mean? Like, seeing Jane, Jane Campion on there, I was like, well, I hope she gets nominated at the Oscars. But yeah. this isn't mean shit this year. Yeah, the one the one nom that stood out to me is like, oh, Danny Villeneuve got in there for best director because he's very much you know fighting for a spot with yeah. many other big name directors. So that's something I'm actually rooting for to happen for the Oscars. But like, yeah, I mean, a lot of usual suspects, I guess. You had Rita Moreno get nominated alongside uh, Rachel Ziegler with West Side Story. That's something to watch, I guess. But yeah, I mean, I would say this is as unrepresentative and irrelevant as the Globes has ever been. And they're hoping to obviously fix that. But again, on the other hand, they're self-policing and self-reforming. So they have to do a lot to try and earn back that trust. And in general, it's it's only the Hollywood foreign press. It's not like something people care about too much in the first place. So it's what it is. Yeah, it feels like the Globes are finally being seen for what they've always been. Just took uh, people exposing corruption to get there so yeah anyways we're gonna move forward from the golden globes <laughs> on to music which is it feels like deja vu dave because we're talking about tira tira whack two weeks in a row nice after yeah. not talking about it too much in the past four years 
<laughs> yeah, and it, it, it's not a lot of music we're talking about. Another three songs dropped. We knew this was coming. Pop, pop. I don't know yeah. how, how you how you say it. Yeah, pop? Question mark. <laughs> you just say the question mark. All right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like with like uh, album titles and stuff, I, it, it's hard to communicate the inflection. You should just say it like you're reading subtitles or something. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, but yeah, so Tierra Whack last week dropped rap, question mark, and this week dropped pop, question mark. And gotta say, rap we were a little disappointed by. Mm. I liked a lot of what we got on pop a lot more than what we got on rap. Felt just a lot more, uh, felt like it actually fit more with what she's been doing on the songs. It's a lot, like these songs were very catchy to me and just kind of like stuck in my head whereas the rap ones i felt were pretty unmemorable uh did you get that have the same experience yeah definitely definitely it's not that she's not rapping it's not that it's not hip-hop you know it's not really Mm -hmm. pop it's just she's singing a little bit more and doing more melodic stuff but i mean body of water that song that hook very reminiscent of one of the best songs off whack world pet cemetery Mm -hmm. you know it's not different from what she was doing on whack world if you really think about it Again, as I noted last week, I really liked her loose single Only Child from a few years ago. That's a song where, yeah, there's a bit of singing. It's not the you know hardest bars we've heard Tirawak lay down, you know. But this felt like music we've heard from her before, but also like some of her best. So I, I like this direction from her and in general, like we said last week, just curious to see if there's another EP to come, a bigger projects down the coming down the line obviously we just would love to hear more from tear whack whatever she seems to be doing yeah i agree a body of water was the clear standout because of that hook and just like everything around it just sounded amazing it's i already put it on our nostalgia best of 2021 check that out um on spotify but i really liked lazy um with the the guitars that sounded very you know uh pop 80s popish, um, which is a, a sound that a lot of people have been riffing off of. And then Dolly surprised me a lot, just being this like stripped back acoustic, almost like countryish type sound. Um, which I mean, w- we talked last week. Her, <laughs> we grade her on a curve because she is so boundary pushing and inventive and unique. Uh, and this is the the sort of stuff I love hearing from her. Is like what, the stuff you don't expect to hear. So. Uh, really enjoyed pop a lot more. Any last thoughts or do you want to move on to just a little juicier? All right, let's move on to Rick Ross. Uh, dropping a, another album. I don't ha- I, I didn't write down which number this was. Uh, richer than I've ever been. His 11th studio 11. album. Rick I was going to say like 10. So yeah, close. 45 years old. Been in the game a long time. 11 albums now. And uh, I'm pretty, uh, I think we've, we've reviewed one or two uh, yeah. since we've been doing the pod, but we're in Miami too in 2019 was the last one we talked about the real, like the thing about Rick Ross is he is just like the best feature guy in the game. Although slowly 21 Savage taking that title over and 21 Savage appears on this ah. album and uh, I think has a really great feature, but um, or maybe not his, maybe not top tier Savage. We'll talk about it, but it's still memorable for sure. Um, and I, I never felt like he put out like an album I was like, super blown away by. Like I was always like, "Oh, that's pretty solid," but I never was like that. That's a classic album. Do you, 
have you felt that way? I know some people really like um there's one from a few years back. What's it called? Uh I mean I'd say if anything is close to that kind of status, it'd probably be like Teflon Don twenty ten. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I'd say no. He doesn't have uh one of those albums. He hasn't had one of those careers. I mean, I'd say like half of his albums are pretty memorable, but Port of Miami too was a welcome return to form or at least return to more familiar quality from Rick Ross. And I like to think that's continued richer than I've ever been. It's nice to see the consistency we expect from Ross features to now at least be coming out more on his own solo projects. Yeah, I I agree. I think this album is not it wouldn't have made my top 10 list if it came out a little earlier for this year, but it has enough tracks on here where I left being like that was solid and I really enjoyed some moments and uh, I really enjoyed some features on this. And just overall, he's making really competent music and uh you really I don't think there's anything here that you can knock too much. Um what what were the tracks that stood out to you most? Yeah, good question. I quite enjoyed the opener little havana featuring uh willie falcone a real life you know gangster uh weight pusher uh figure nice contrast or or, uh you know comparison to the persona rose has had in rap for some time now but i mean that just i think the flow is good you know ross in general i think sounds good in the whole album but i just really loved his uh omarion discs I released Omarion. He began to fizz, obviously one of his uh, former signees to uh, Maybach Music Group. And yeah, I thought I thought his flow on that was was pretty good. And he had the standout quotable. Yeah, I, I love the uh, the bass on that where it's like, wow, wow, wow. Just really, uh, really sticky uh, bass on that. I thought that was great. Um, I mentioned the. Uh, the track with 21 Savage uh, and, and Jasmine Sullivan, an artist we mentioned on our uh, best of the year, not as someone that made our list because we, we missed her album last year, but someone that is getting a lot of acclaim on, on end of year list for having a great record from 2021. Right. But I really liked Outlaws a lot. Um, it kind of reminds me of everything that I want in a Rick Ross song. It just sounds like really badass and him and Savage just play off each other really well. And then you got Jasmine Sullivan singing uh like a nice little break down the middle and sounds great to me i don't know did you like that that track yeah no totally uh, for those reasons i don't think it's like one of the best 21 features we've got but it certainly isn't the first bad 21 feature we've got in hsc <laughs> right. you know it's still good uh pistol talking back i think it heard a cursing at me or something you know I, mm-hmm. 21 just has a unique uh, voice and personality at this point it's always great to hear him just be a contrast when he shows up on someone else's work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. What other tracks stood out to you? Yeah, so I liked uh, Rapper's Estates with The Butcher, The Butcher Coming, Benny mm-hmm. The Butcher. Uh, specifically the beat on that, the the horns really stood out to me. And then on the other side of things, right after that, you had Marathon, where I didn't really like Ross and that. I didn't really like his flow. I thought it was kind of a weak flow. But the beat like really reminded me of like a thriller movie, you know, not quite a drill beat, but still kind of ominous and eerie. Yeah, no, it definitely had that eerie vibe to it for sure. Um, what do you think of the song Warm Words in a Cold World with Wale and Future? 
I've never been a Wally guy, never been a future guy. So <laughs> didn't really change my opinion. Yeah, stacked up against you there. I, I kinda liked the like the sound of it. I don't know if it was like exactly what it was, but um n- not so much Wale and, and Future's features, but more so just like the overall vibe of it. I think it was like the snap clap to it, and then having mm-hmm. like you mentioned the horns on it kind of rising and falling around their rapping, I thought it sounded just really cool. Um but yeah, I don't, I don't think the rapping on that is anything to write home about for, for sure. Yeah, I mean, the only song I really disliked was Can't Be Broke. I just didn't really care for the, the singing on that. But, you know, I thought the Dream Doll feature was pretty solid. I even thought the Wiz Khalifa feature was pretty solid. Wiz just dropped a uh, uh, tape with, I believe, uh, Carta, which I haven't listened to yet. But I, I always enjoy hearing a, a solid Wiz feature just because he's not quite as uh, active as he used to be. Where does like what is Ross's like status in the rap world right now? Just kind of like is he in the like the two chains like territory where he's gonna put out some okay records and just do some good features and that's kind of it now? Yeah, I think that's it. I think that's about right because he he's he's a peer of like two chains and like Pusha T, but I think critically and culturally pushes at like a slightly different level due to his association with Kanye's beef with Drake things like that. But yeah, I think Ross is very firm in his status. You know, he's mm-hmm. not as popular as other the other label heads. You know, he never has been. But he, it feels like he's really like you know solidified his his output these days. And I mean, it's funny to think about him like this. But he's only three years younger than Nas, so oh, wow. he's re- yeah he's forty five. Nas is forty eight. Obviously, we've known about Nas since you know. I mean. So he, he was he was he, he was notorious before i was you know coherent person you know <laughs> since the 90s ross hasn't been like that right culturally ross didn't really make any noise till the end the, the second half of the uh, 2000s but he seems to in, in older age you know getting his fitness a little bit more under control he seems to just be really solid and, and secure and yeah i don't think he's dropping any classics but you know I wouldn't be surprised to see a, a slight step up and we get something on par like the King's Disease albums that Nas just released, you know? So it doesn't seem, does he doesn't sound like washed by any means, despite the age. No, definitely not. Yeah, I, I think uh, it's just nice to hear him like making competent music and it seems kind of effortless at this point for him. So like you said, I think there's a potential to even get something greater than this moving forward. Um, Dave, unfortunately, someone that we're not going to be getting something better than what we got this week probably is juice world um you know obviously we've talked about juice world uh i can't remember were we recording when his death was announced was that him uh no we were no, that, recording that was, when uh, xx and centacion yes. died um but juice world did die about two years ago yep, right around this time december 2019 uh, obviously accidental overdose um unfortunate circumstances leading to that accidental overdose um it's not even like say mac miller's death it's more of like a case of trying to avoid the cops you know like it's a really shitty situation and anyway juice has been gone two years we have a documentary juice wrote into the abyss coming out on hbo max later this week the last uh, hbo ringer music box documentary and this uh, second posthumous album fighting demons is the soundtrack of sorts for that forthcoming documentary and 
as I said, second posthumous album from Juice. We just had the second posthumous album from Pop Smoke, and clearly that was a step in the wrong direction as the material has fizzled away. Right around that first posthumous album from Pop Smoke was also the first posthumous album from Juice World, which was a huge success, one of the biggest albums, biggest streaming projects of 2020. Legends Never Die. And, you know, I wasn't anticipating a second Juice Posthumous album just because of the in- inevitable diminishing returns and the persistent uh, ethical questions that concern posthumous records. But uh, we still got one. Here it is. Fighting Demons. What do you think? I was pleasantly surprised. Not going to lie. Um, I, you know, as you mentioned, we had uh, Legends Never Die. This was supposed to be called The Party Never Ends. And then mm-hmm. it got scrapped. And we're supposed to be getting a third posthumous Juice World album mm-hmm. called Party Never Ends next year, which I'm not, I don't have high hopes for. But I think what I liked most about this was a lot of these songs did not have features so they felt like at least somewhat probably what he was going for in terms of the songs so that it felt a bit more maybe genuine or in line with what you hope juice was trying to make with these songs and then i feel like the features we did get were okay like they weren't necessarily like the best thing ever for me but i felt like they were serviceable a couple of songs i really liked um Overall, I mean, these posthumous albums always feel a bit grimy, I think. Uh, like, I think the only one that didn't really was probably Circles with Mac Miller. <laughs> you know, right. that one felt pretty true to what felt like he had Mac's been working on that so much on his own. It's just kind of a different circumstance. Right. Um, but overall, I, was, I, I wasn't I was as like, uh, I didn't feel like this will, this was as bad as I expected it to be. How did you feel about it? Yeah, I mean, well, in general, I thought Legends Never uh, Die last year was a pleasant surprise. It wasn't quite as revelatory as, say, that first Pop Smoke album, but still pretty solid, you know? This one, I'd say it's okay. I do welcome that there's very few features. Obviously, that was a big issue with the second Pop Smoke posthumous album, which clearly is a form of padding because you just you kind of ran out of stuff because they're no longer with us. It makes sense. So you don't have that problem with this fighting demons, but I, I think there's a few moments where it's like, Oh, that's some like, that's like a classic juice. song. like, nice that they found that one. That one sounded pretty finished. Then there's some other ones that I'm like, yeah, this was like half a song and kind of annoying. I think in general, the probably the biggest like posthumous sin, you know, the, the normal caveats we think about is some of the beat selection. Like you have on a, uh, not enough. That, that's a Dr. Luke beat. I have a hard time thinking that was the beat that uh, Juice World had originally intended when he, you know, had made the that uh, that demo or whatever, how whatever yeah. form it was in. You know. Uh, on the other hand, you know, from my window, the guitars on that beat do kind of remind me of the beat from Black and White off yep. the first Juice World album. So it's not like anything is out of the realm of possibility beforehand. Uh, to the features, I thought the Justin Bieber feature on uh, uh, what was it Wander LA? to LA, Wander to LA. I thought the Bieber feature just kind of like didn't really fit the song super mm-hmm. well. It was a it was a fine performance from Justin. It just kind of felt like a copy paste to me. Uh, and the I think the weirdest one honestly was uh, Sugar from BTS. Obviously, Sugar is one of the rappers uh, in BTS, but 
it just feels like a kind of opportunistic pairing between two people that never met. Yeah. I, I felt like that was definitely weird when I, when I saw it on the track list. Um, I, I thought it sounded okay, but I just was kind of, I agree. It was kind of like, I don't know if these people would have actually worked together in real life. Um, what'd you think of Polo G and Trippy Red on Feline? Yeah, I thought they were okay, but I still didn't really love the song. Polo G was also on uh, Legends Never Die. I didn't really care for that song either. Disappointing considering they're both from Chicago and they did know each other. Um, honestly, I, w- I wouldn't have minded a Kid Leroy feature on this given their friendship in life. And obviously the big year Kid Leroy had in 2021 yeah. and he would have been on the first album. I thought that would have actually made some sense. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, the thing lyrically, thematically, it's all the things you expect from Juice, right? It's a lot of really dark, morbid, uh, but personal lyrics about his need, desire to self-medicate, to go through life and things, things of that nature. You know, it's that emo rap, that, 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 that uh, melodic crooning rap that you expect from Juice. Yeah, I honestly no, thought. And, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, uh, I, I was gonna say to that point. I think he the my favorite moments on this album were when it see it felt like the song was definitely uh, something he crafted, and that was very in line with that. Um, like my probably my favorite track off this is "Feel Alone," which is just like very sing songy, but I feel like you can really feel the emotion and lyrically a pretty like deep song. You know, talking about some of his demons but also like uh you know wrestling with like love and loss and um i think that's probably the thing i took away most from this was if i felt like i got a little bit more about juice world as a person from this album or at least whatever they were trying to get across and what i think they're probably going to try to show in the documentary coming out later this week about you know him struggling with mental health issues uh wanting to be a leader in that sphere for black men and, and other black people to be able to talk about mental health and emotions right. and his struggles. I, you know, to that point though, I wanted to ask you how you felt about Eminem kind of showing up and talking about his struggles with addiction. Yeah. So I believe the, the moments of juice talking were cut from a billboard interview juice gave in uh, March, 2019. Cool to see that reuse. I think that's an effective like in form of interlude for an album like this. I honestly really like the Eminem uh, spot there made complete sense uh you know shows the other side of this thing when you're a superstar just completely lost in the abyss like this and Eminem luckily was able to find his way out of that as everyone knows because it happened so publicly but that wasn't like a quick quick hitter either like Eminem really like talked about it for like you know a minute and a half or something I thought that was uh you know it's tough to hear but it's also nice to hear from Eminem and you know he's he's not that like I'm you know I haven't been high in Eminem's music for quite some time, but Juice had been used on one of the recent Eminem albums. So it's nice to see Eminem kind of like return that favor on this. Yeah, totally. And I thought it was the best thing we've heard from Eminem on one of his albums in a very long time. Yeah. So I thought it was great. Um, so I cut you off before. What were you going to say? Uh, oh, I don't even remember at this point. Oh, okay. I, so I, I say my, my, my favorite song on this is Already Dead, which was the first single. That feels and sounds like a completely finished song. Very juice, very reminiscent. And the lyrics, you know, him literally talking about how he's already dead, obviously really on the nose, kind of reminds me of on the last posthumous album where Juice was saying, I forgot the song, he was saying, I know my lyrics change you once again, just kind of speaking directly to his ardent fans 
Um, on the other side of things, I thought uh, Go Hard, Doom, and was it Prime? What was that song called? Go Hard, Doom, and, yeah, and Rockstar in his prime. I thought all those hooks were really poor and an example of what an unfinished posthumous snippet being made into a song after death sounds like. The verses on Rockstar's Prime, not too bad. But those hooks in particular, like, I think are great examples of what can go wrong when you just don't have enough to really finish the song. But overall, I don't think this is nearly as bad as that second pop album, which was an abomination, honestly. Yeah, you know, I think in some respects, um, outside of those posthumous albums, I feel just like a cash grab. I think people are starting to take a little bit more care with these and trying to be a little bit more true to the artists. I, I think obviously the reception to circles probably uh, gave a good blueprint for how to try to go about it. I mean, obviously you're not going to always have it where the artist is working on a, a concept album like that, or have a concept for an album similar to Mac had for circles. But I think uh, it seems like, or and this might just be totally anecdotal, but it feels like they're getting a little bit better the posthumous albums. So let's let's hope but um we're gonna move on from music now and head into succession season three <laughs> wrapping up last night uh yeah <laughs> so i wasn't able to watch it last night because i was at the show right and i stayed off twitter and Wise. this morning i woke up super early because i just had it on the brain and i was like i have to go see what happened on succession and i watched it at like 6 30 in the morning and i just like sat on my couch for like a half hour afterwards like holy shit this season of television was so awesome i, I mean we're like you mentioned we're gonna be doing our best of the year uh best tv of the year end of the week um i have a feeling we'll be talking about this again very soon uh <laughs> but dave just like your overall reactions to season three of succession oh yeah I mean, loved it. Best show on TV. Spoilers for the list. Yeah. <laughs> Great season. The end of the season is is dynamite. And the finale is some of the most riveting television I've ever watched, especially the second half of the finale. Mm-hmm. You go from this incredible scene between the three siblings, Roman, Shiv, and Kendall. Kendall confessing, finally. To that's the, the the you know the waiter he killed the, the the sin that's been hanging over him and haunting him for so long confessing to that and then in a sense rallying with his his two siblings as a way to finally take down the dad they they hate or at least two of them hate you know Logan and yet it ends in no way only succession could you know I I thought it was an absolutely incredible ending yeah. Uh. <laughs> You know, the the arc of the season was so fascinating, right? So season two wraps up uh, with Kendall versus Logan. You know, Kendall going public that Logan was aware of all the corruption and the assault and the sexual abuse going on uh, under Waystar's watch and basically setting it up where he's going to expose all of that and then make a play to take over the business. And pretty much like <laughs> the season was just, Logan beating Kendall down every step of the way. Nothing Kendall tried worked and just seeing Kendall be ground to a pulp. Yeah. And so when you get that moment where 
Kendall and Roman and Siobhan are just sitting there talking and Jeremy Strong is putting on a fucking clinic, dude. I'm blown into a million pieces. I'm so fucking lonely. Like that right there would have been the highlight of most shows seasons like that just would have been like even some some shows that would have been like the apex moment of their whole run and then you just go into this incredible 20 minutes of just like we're making a play we're gonna do this and that final showdown between logan and his kids is just so fucking brutal and this show just makes every everything just comes together so perfectly uh a uh line that tom says at the end of i think the first episode i'm gonna get what's the name like daryl Hedden on this or something like this i want to speak to him about this and then you hear i i don't remember if it was carl or frank go uh don't worry about it we have uh we have daryl Hedden on this and you just then you just know like tom is the judas tom mm. pulled it off he finally did what he hasn't been able to do to siobhan and then you yeah. see the godfather shot dude it's just all so fucking good yeah hell yeah I mean, to quote Tom's line to Kendall a few episodes back after they talk, um, I've never seen Logan get fucked once. And like, he's like, I, I, I see you get fucked all the time. However, he says it, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, the thing is, and what makes the show so great, and I think why Jesse Armstrong, the showrunner, the, yeah. the main writer, Jesse Armstrong needs to be elevated to the, the, the top tier of TV creators. Obviously, that he doesn't have the the volume of shows the way some of the elites do but as far as one show creators like he is definitely up there now armstrong knows that we 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 don't like these people they're all bad people the show doesn't shy away from that but at the end you're still rooting for them and you feel like absolute dog shit when logan wins again and it's kind of crazy because in this season season three Roman has never been less likable. Shiv has yep. never been less likable, right? Roman really just openly flirting with uh, the, the darkest corners of the right political, political movement. Mm-hmm. Shiv really showing her true colors as a careerist and how she you know, tried to strong arm Jerry and also mm-hmm. just the, the terrible uh, wife and partner that she is to Tom, right? Like, and obviously we know how broken Kendall is and he's, the show makes it clear in this season how uh, terrible he is to his family, just as kind of an absent dad, and how hypocritical he is as a performative, you know, reformer in his attempts to take over the company, right? Like, they, they've all been broken down and made irredeemable in a sense. But the finale still finds a way to bring every, bring everyone's rooting interest back on them once again. And then you have Tom's Tom's revenge. It's amazing. Yeah, uh, that that's a great point. And, you know, I, I was really left with that thought today, and I was like, why do I want these people to win? Like, I shouldn't feel bad for them right now. I shouldn't feel so gutted by them losing to Logan because I, you know, when you think about it, the only two people on the show who are like central characters in any way that are not completely terrible people are tom who's kind of terrible by association yeah he's and like greg. just terrible rich <laughs> rich person greg kind of a uh, little dim-witted opportunistic yeah. now rich person you know they're and, they're not as malevolent as the others but they're not like great either and then you get this 
amazing back and forth between them. Uh, and, you know, just shout out uh, McFadden and Braun, who just like yep. their chemistry together is incredible and just always like the comedic highlight for me of every episode is usually their back and forth. But where, you know, Tom says, like, are you willing to sell your soul to do this? And Greg's like, who needs a soul? Souls like, souls aren't fun anyway or something like that. Yeah, boom, soulless. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing just, scene. Um, and just like, like, I think on a lot of shows, that sort of writing would have been taken as like, oh, that's really like too on the nose. But it just fits those characters so perfectly. And it, can, yeah. it just explains everything about the situation so well. Just right. Incredible. Right. And, and and that's the thing. I think there's been some talk. I wouldn't even call it crazy, but there's some talk that Succession season three, especially in the first half, the plot was spinning a little bit, right? You're like, mm-hmm. oh, maybe I kind of see what's going to happen here. Kendall, or sorry, Logan will not pick any of his kids to succeed him. Kendall will fail once again to beat his dad. And there won't be too much plot movement. And I guess in a macro sense, that's, that is kind of true for the first half of the season. But the reason I don't think it holds much water is kind of what I said before, is the show is so involved in coloring in and deepening the characterization of our central cast here. Like I said about what what's changed and, and progressed with Kendall, with Roman, with Shiv, with Tom, due to his relationship with Shiv, and heck, even with Connor. In this finale, you know, Connor finally... Uh, letting loose i'm the older son you know connor is largely there for for comic relief and as a you know a a tear down as a part of the ensemble but even him they found a way to enrich even more you know so i I just feel like the way to see the arc of the season the way the season ends going into the finale like everything just felt like of a piece and it's been it's been developed it's been written to this point everything just makes complete sense it's so great obviously alongside that you have amazing production values they literally yeah they go to tuscany for a long yeah. period of time they're in tuscany a long time man it looks Incredible. amazing Dude. you know with the, the wedding as a setting like it's so good and yeah and the it, acting has never been better uh well I, I definitely want to talk about the performances this season uh just so there's there's not a better looking show on television and you know, you just think about some of the shots from just this finale. We won't even talk about the rest of the season. We'll just kind of mention that shot of Roman going on the boat, like out to see Air, uh, Alexander Skarsgård's character. I yes. forgot his, his name. Yeah, the Gojo founder. Yes, amazing, amazing filming there. But then the the picture we both have as our backgrounds that that, that scene where you know Jeremy Strong's Kendall is breaking down and. Uh, Roman is leaning over holding his shoulders and Shiv is touching his head and then in the final scene it's reversed where Roman's yeah. on the floor totally gutted and you know Kendall's holding his shoulder or holding his shoulders it's amazing that how that sort of thing happens and I was mm-hmm. thinking about last succession season two's finale which it might be one of the most beautifully shot television episodes of all time and I was like there's no way they could ever like top that if anything even comes close it'd be really impressive and i think some of the shots in this episode and just in this whole season rivaled it or at least come close so just a it's a total you know masterpiece in my opinion from all perspectives and you mentioned the performances who who did you feel like was like the best performer this season on the show who gave the i'd say it's kieran culkin as roman because i mean he just has he's had his best 
material yet as Roman, right? Roman's been further colored in. His relationship with Logan, with his dad, is um, further developed. His own uh, psychological ups and downs, you know, will further expose. And I think Colkin, he's just such a master with Armstrong's writing. And he knows how, like, it's funny to see his performance alongside Jeremy Strong's Kendall performance because they're so different. But they just both fit the show because, again, the characters are so established at this point. And, yeah, I think Colkin's incredible. Yeah. Uh, he def- This is definitely the Roman season. And seeing his arc from kind of being, like, the, the third fiddle in, in the last couple seasons to basically being... The, the number one boy this season, so to speak. And uh, Logan, it feels like grooming him to be his right-hand man, potentially the, the successor to the, the company. Uh, and then when it, when it comes down to brass tacks and uh, Logan's looking to sell the company, he just sends him away. <laughs> and the way Culkin's character rose and, fall, and fell this season, and some of the moments, like, after Kendall's birthday party episode at the end when, you know, after Roman shoved him and Kendall falls and everybody leaves very upset is almost like Joker. Like the look on Roman's face, walking home alone in the streets um, and the way that the camera just kind of like walked with him, like uh, like close up on his face, just incredible. Or, you know, the, the, the dick pic episode, the, the penultimate episode right. and his, his facial expressions in that alone are, are worth all the money for this season. And then you get that final scene and the look on his face as he's pleading to Jerry to just like help. And she turns him down because it's not in her self-interest, just like a masterpiece of acting. And he was so impressive this season. Yeah, totally. I mean, even the, the scene where Ken- Kendall breaks down, I thought he was really good in that too, where in, in his own Roman way, trying to comfort Kendall, you know, really good. Obviously, in the penultimate episode, you have the cliffhanger of sorts about Kendall. Did he pass out and drown in the pool? He doesn't. And, you know, I thought if that had happened, I think it would have worked because you had so much finality with his uh, late night conversation with Logan. And like the say of the relationship is made so clear. But then the way they bring him back into the fold and end up having him reconcile with his siblings around you know, just his own, their, their own, you know, fucked up love for each other. And then later their uh, desire to, you know, beat dad. I, th- I you know, it made perfect sense that he didn't die because they had so much more to do. And then you get, again, the confession scene, as you said, it's just such a pinnacle moment. Yeah. Uh, Tolkien, I think, deserves the Emmy for sure. But, you know, everybody on this season, I felt like was some of their best work. I, I think about uh sarah snook as siobhan and man that that the scene the conversation between her and her mom in the penultimate episode and then just like how that all plays out between her and tom you know just is so impressive uh i loved that the way that they shot the the breakfast scene between her and tom you know the morning after they have the denigrating sex and uh man just the way it like walks around with them and is so tight on them and you can just see like mcfade in every single like 
emotional bone in his body just being snapped in half as Shiv is just obviously toying with him and keeping him on this leash. And pretty much the night before, said everything that she's been wanting to say that she doesn't really love him. She thinks that she's not, that he's not good enough for her. Doesn't want to have his babies. Yep. Absolutely brutal. Um, but I, I, I love Sarah Snook this season as well. And it's funny. Cause I think Shiv as a character is just, I mean, Roman says it, you know, she's, she's the girl, she's not part of the boys club. And for that reason, she gets kind of sidelined within some of the ventures of the business. But I think, Siobhan plays it plays such a central like middleman in a way you know it felt like at any point she could teeter back to Kendall's side and I felt like that was so important mm. to kind of keep some of the the wheels spinning when maybe it felt like the show wasn't going as many places people yeah. wanted it to go right and you know I think even like in the early goings where the plot may not be uh have as much forward momentum as some people like you still have an awesome one-off episode with Adrian Brody as yeah. a uh, large-scale uh, shareholder mm-hmm. in, in Waystar Royco. Uh, it's really awesome to see a different side of Brody than we've come to expect in, like, say, his frequent roles in Wes Anderson films. I thought he was great. I thought that that moment was great. And the early goings where Logan's, like, mental fitness or physical fitness is a little more questionable, right, where he's, like, piss mad and stuff. I really like how all that worked. But the, the Brody moment in the beginning and then even scars guard in the end of the season just great pieces of stunt casting absolutely no i and uh i loved i think his name is matson scars guard character or something like that yes uh, yep. i really enjoyed his presence on the show and scars guard somebody that i feel like has really leaned into these like weird like asshole parts recently but hearing him talk in his like native accent um you know be this like really weird guy and someone that logan obviously sees as like kind of in the same ilk as himself i thought was really interesting and Skarsgård played it perfectly like he really felt very convincing and almost like intimidating in his role as, as matson um you know we we haven't talked a lot about uh you know uh, mcfaden as uh tom but i felt like he almost had like the most thank thankless role and then gets like the, the biggest payoff there at the end, uh, obviously, but him and, you know, him for the first couple parts of the season is just sitting there as like the sacrificial lamb and dealing with his feelings about potentially going to jail. And then, you know, deciding how he wants to play that out, what he wants to do. And then it's about him wanting Shiv to love him, which is kind of like, what he's wanting he kind of wants family too you know it seems you know he when logan called him son he called him papa pop papa <laughs> you know when he's pissed mad <laughs> so like there are there are those moments but uh i just feel like him and him and nicholas braun kind of got sidelined a little bit at times this sure. season but you know you, not everybody can get the ball all the time right yeah i mean obviously you get the falling out between uh braun and uh was it james cromwell Mm-hmm. Uh, Logan's brother and then alongside that you kind of get Braun's like questionable foray into romantic pursuits uh, with Comfrey and then the other, the other person at the wedding I I did enjoy that like I, I don't think there's any like wasted material on like the, the people that are on the outside even like Fisher Stevens just being a bigger part of the the administration of the company like, I, he's just awesome in that like you know like communications role yeah, 
I feel like like the corruption of Greg is one of the most like or one of the least talked about aspects of this season because Greg kind of teetering on the like I guess I'll go with Kendall because it seems like Kendall's going to watch out for me. And then when Kendall's not watching out for him, he just kind of goes back and is working in his own self-interest. And by the end of the season, he's not only kind of, how do they describe it? Like jumping girlfriends or like jumping status in terms of girlfriend or something like that. Yes. Punching up or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. But he's also just like looking at Tom and like, I don't want to have a soul like fuck this. It's fun to be thrown in the air by proud boys because I, I want to sue Greenpeace, a organization that seems like it's doing a lot of good in this world. Uh, just a really like fascinating person to watch as he's gone from being, you know, little Greg the egg to someone that seems like he's kind of coming into his own a bit. I wonder if he'll get a little bit more to do next season or not. Yeah. Yeah. Let's see. I mean, yeah. Cause I did have point right at one point. Logan's like, uh, we even got little Greggy, you know, it's like, <laughs> And then, and then Tom, I think in the finale, just blatantly said to his face, "Dude, you're a joke. You you embarrass yourself in front of Congress. Yeah, like what else you gonna do if you're not gonna ride, <laughs> ride with me?" Yeah. And Greg, to his credit, so you know, he's like, you know what? You're right. I got nothing else going on. The bottom of the top. <laughs> he was like, "Yes, <laughs> absolutely, honestly, a great great pitch by Tom there. Like, oh yeah, amazing yeah. work." Um, I'd say alongside that, we've had some nice uh, press going on about this uh there was a lot of uh work written about nicholas braun and his uh status in new york city as a more eligible bachelor and a figure of moi just this past week we had the big new yorker profile about jeremy strong getting into his uh method acting abilities and philosophy on acting and work and stuff but and and you know we had um before the show started there was a huge write up by Hunter Harris and Vulture about the succession cast in Italy. Like it, it, it's awesome just to see so much rallying around the show. And it definitely seems to have gotten a bit more popular due to the longer than expected delay between seasons two and three. And now just the, the anticipation for season four, just unbearable. You know, I, I have to imagine that it's going to be a little bit because they haven't started filming yet. Yeah. I, I imagine we'll either get it late next year, maybe 2023, but um, well, is there anything that you want to see? I mean, it's kind of set up now where it's like the three siblings versus Logan and Tom and I guess Greg. Uh, obviously, the stuff between Shiv and Tom is going to be super interesting. She might just go yeah. full scorched earth on yeah. him. You see uh, her face on the end like she knows. Yeah. Absolutely. So what, what are you what are you hoping to see? What do you think? What do you think yeah. we'll see? Anything like that comes to mind? I'd love to see the continuation of the the unified front between the siblings. I, yeah. I thought I mean, I thought the lead up, you know, when they're in that the car driving mm-hmm. to see Logan, I thought that was so riveting, you know, and like seeing them and like you, you, you're on the edge of your seat being like, Roman, don't 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 bitch out and go back to dad, like stay with them. Right. So I want to see that continue because it would change the dynamic of the show with Kendall no longer being in the only outsider. So I think there's plot wise, there's plenty of uh, new directions to go down, even if the central conflict is more or less the same, who's going to take over the company, who's going to succeed Logan. And now that's, again, it's kind of been flipped on its head because Logan's selling the company, yeah. right? Something you probably never would have thought uh, to see coming when you watch uh, most of the rest of the show. So 
I think season four has a ton of potential. And honestly, I'm sure Armstrong has had plenty of time to uh, sit with this because he wrote season three so long ago, of course, due to the COVID delays COVID. affecting starting the production. So, yeah, it's uh, really exciting. Yeah, I, I I agree. I think that was one of my favorite scenes was just them going back and forth and like convincing Roman that this was like the only move that they really had. Um, and then when he's like, I think we would make a pretty good team, even though it's a little fucked up to say, like, I, I would just really like to see them, whatever their venture is going to be, uh, starting their own company together, a rival company, uh, how they're going to go about it. I, I hope Skarsgård is a, um, continued, uh, mainstay within the cast, just cause I thought he was absolutely awesome. And, um, you know, I, I think I would like to see less of Caroline. <laughs> she was great. Uh, and just, but just so brutal and just so tough to like her, <laughs> uh, yeah, very hateable character. Um, but yeah, man, just, I, I'm, I'm all in on the show, whatever, wherever they take us, I'm, I'm down for it at this point. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think, um, thinking about it the last few years right like uh season two came out 2019 same year as watchmen and fleabag season two <laughs> season three comes out 2021 i mean i feel like the 2021 crown it's it's pretty, pretty undisputed this time it's it's the best show i know i i see all these like uh best of tv lists that have succession like eighth like no <laughs> sorry shitty, like, shitty taste is what that is <laughs> yeah absolutely well well we'll be talking a little bit more about succession later on in the week why don't we move on to west side story 2021 i should say the uh steven spielberg retelling i guess slight change around he made a few modifications to the structure of the movie but yeah obviously Se- second adaptation of the original musical you could say uh yeah first first uh film since the 1961 original film which won 10 academy awards including best picture uh you know beloved um what why don't we just start with our general reactions to the movie then maybe we can get into some of the the stuff around the movie which i think is also important to touch on um i saw it this weekend theater was not not packed and the box no. office is going to reflect that uh or has reflected that um however i thought this movie was just really delightful um you know as someone that's seen the 1961 west side story but not in a very long time um i didn't remember all the little aspects so i had to go back and read about some of the tweaks and the changes that spielberg made um but overall i felt like i felt like this movie was overwhelming in the best way possible it was loud it was colorful there was a ton of movement a ton of action i thought the performances for the most part were really really good um and so i was really really pleased with this a movie i didn't think we even needed so the fact that i liked it this much i was really surprised by what did you think about it though yeah i i liked it quite a bit i think just the spielberg tackling the material adding his flourishes to the film the camera is so alive um some of the the numbers like like america just really uh, enhanced due to the changes to the choreography and the staging but just like spielberg's touch just really shines through you know production design uh, the lighting a lot of it just really dynamite and yeah i mean it's 
it's a classic story right and the plot wise even you don't really remember it it's you pick it up quick it's romeo and juliet but the subtle tweaks i also too had to look look some of those up didn't really recall you know seeing them too much live but um I, I, I really liked it. I think it's just really fun. And I, I think especially the first half of the film is like really, really tremendous. I think in general, both movies, the, the second half is, is, is kind of the, the weaker uh, side of things, kind of like the, the second half of Romeo and Juliet, I guess. But sure. yeah, I, I liked it quite a bit. And I honestly was thinking a lot about um, Little Women 2019, something up from Greta Gerwig, something else that, you know, when it was announced, the, the usefulness, the need for it kind of came into question in Little Women's case, Greta Gerwig. Uh, that's really going to be the follow-up to Lady Bird? Is that really what we're going to do? And then she makes, bar none, the best version of Little Women to date. You're like, oh, that's why. Yeah. West Side Story 2021, kind of the same thing. Spielberg, getting up there in age. Is this really one, what you want one of your last few movies to be an adaptation of a film that won best picture like is there something more to say with with that and i think he definitely he definitely earned it he definitely justified it because it's just a really impressive uh creation yeah and spielberg has talked a lot about why he wanted to do this as as a child he just like loved this movie and it heavily influences the way he watched movies uh his love for movies so it makes a lot makes a lot of sense uh, that he would want to again did we need it uh, you could even still say no but I, I think this is really really well done movie I think one of the things that made me feel a little skeptical at first was uh, who was cast as the leads as Tony mm. and Maria and you know when you think about the 1961 movie I actually don't really think about Tony and Maria that much I think no. about just the, the least interesting and- parts of the whole story they always have been Totally. And especially when you think about the 1961 film, um, you know, you have Natalie Wood uh, cast as Maria, who is Hispanic um, from Puerto Rico uh, and is white, you know, so there, there's, yes. there's Natalie Wood, there. not not Latina in any. Stretch. Yes, not Latina. Yes. Yeah. And um, Richard Bamer just, I think, giving a very like wooden performance, like not very showy. And I, like, like you said, the parts aren't necessarily made to be super showy. Uh, everyone else kind of gets like <laughs> Bernardo and Riff are, and Anita are much more interesting characters, just period. But yeah. um, El Gore has been, you know, <laughs> I think widely criticized for being a pretty wooden performer himself, for being kind of oafish at times on screen. How did you yeah. feel like he did in this movie? Yeah, I mean, and, and alongside that, you have the uh, controversy of El Gord even being in the film at all due to the uh, right. allegations against him. And for what it's worth, this film, this, made, this movie was made, and he was cast before those allegations were publicized. On the other hand, he did still do press for the film, so they didn't exactly run away from the fact that he was in the movie. Either way, uh, yeah, I, I thought he was okay with the singing. Honestly, like he was yeah. good enough. And then some of the other scenes, even though it's Tony Kushner dialogue, and in general, I think Tony Kushner did a pretty good job with the script in terms of having people twist, uh, tweak a script. He's you know uh, a, a nice person to hire for this, obviously, given his <laughs> resume. But yeah, I think the, some of the other scenes, like, yeah, like Al Gore just doesn't really have those, those chops. And like, yeah, think of 
a notorious flop from a few years ago, the Goldfinch, you know, same kind of thing. He just really can't carry some of that material. I think the saving grace of the film, though, is that Rachel Ziegler, new on the scene, as of right now, only 20 years old, is really great as Maria and still does a pretty good job of trying to sell that chemistry because Elgort isn't exactly bringing too much to it. Yeah, I, I thought Elgort, I, maybe I liked his performance a little bit more than you did. Um, I, I think probably the thing that stood out most for me is he just feels a lot older than a lot of the people in the film. And um, just yeah, true in is, real life. Yeah, he is 27 and Ziegler is 20 uh, at this point. So when they filmed this, even, you know, younger. Yeah, I, think she, I think she was like 18 when they made it. And and she looks eighteen, and she feels eighteen, and the fact that she gives the performance that she does, she's the real story here. And I feel like she may even have a Oscar worthy um, performance in this film. Um, but she's just awesome, and I think Spielberg does a really good job of like fleshing out her character more um, than in the original. So I think you know she's given a little bit more to work with. Um, but yeah, I, I thought they had a little bit better chemistry. I think about the scene of them like on the fire escapes, which first of all mm-hmm. looks incredible and looks so realistic. But like the way like Al Gore is kind of like looking through the gate at her, like really starry eyed. I, I like I felt like yeah. I, I felt some chemistry there or them behind the um, benches or the bleachers at the uh, gym. Oh, oh yeah. The, the, the dance scene's really good between them. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. I think as it goes on almost when they're getting to the point where they're like trying to like get away like after the fight that's when i feel like elgort really just did not meet the moment like when uh when valentina tells him that you know anita said that maria is dead because uh chino shot her and elgort is like acting all upset i i didn't think that was that's not going to go on the highlight reel for him no i actually didn't mind his new york accent I think part of that's because I, I, I believe he grew up in New York, so I guess it makes sense that he knows how to do it. But uh, Ziegler, also from New York, Bergen County, New Jersey, right over there, um, they ta- they they auditioned tens of thousands for this film. This was Ziegler's first feature film role. Um, they they nailed it. You know, it definitely was a labor of love to to make that work, but. Uh, really hats off to them for finding her and um, also she hit the jackpot because she's been cast as Snow White in the upcoming live ad- action adaptation by Disney and also has a role in um, Shazam 2 from DC so Ziegler is a fast rising uh, star but truly the saving grace I'd say of the film although I did think uh, there were two other like really uh, big Shirley performances that are kind of central to this version of West Side Story being so good yeah, I definitely want to talk about those. Just want to say real quick, uh, one thing that I think we should give Ziegler a lot of credit for that Natalie Wood did not do in the original was Ziegler actually sang her songs, oh, yeah. which Natalie Wood did not do. Um, and Ziegler, her voice is incredible. She's just an absolute dynamite star going to be you know on the rise here in Hollywood moving forward. So definitely uh, this this is going to put her on the map and we'll be talking about her a lot more in the future. I'm going to guess that one of those people that stood out to you was Mike faced. Is that right? Yes. As riff. Yeah. Yeah. I thought he was amazing. He was amazing. I was not familiar with Mike faced, although upon uh, further review, he was one of the original cast members 
in Dear Evan Hansen, a, a theater background from him. But yeah, he he's great as Riff. Um, just has the charisma, but he has the edge. There's not as much edge with the Riff character in the 1961 film. And I really like how some of the tweaks to the screenplay benefit this edging up of the Riff character. Like he's not he's not likable. The the uh, the Jets in general are made less likable because their their nativist attitudes, their racist attitudes toward the Puerto Ricans are not hidden or sanded down in this you know i like how the screenplay kind of unites the jets and the sharks under the uh, guise of uh, gentrification robert moses tearing down lower manhattan in the west side to build uh, lincoln center you know i really like how that's like an establishing uh, framing device for this conflict but they still don't run away from how, why it's like a, a racial conflict between these two groups that both feel helpless for different reasons and mike face is just really tremendous as the leader of the jets yeah he he's a a scene stealer you know he has a very distinct face which i think helps yeah but that edge clearly comes across and you you know he gets a couple of scenes where it's like very obvious you know like the scene where they they get the gun and he like you know, the guy's like, do you know what you'd even do with this son? He puts the gun to his head and you're just like, oh, okay, this guy's got a little bit of a screw loose. Um, but yeah, he comes across as pretty menacing and um, still likable in some sense, you know, like, I, like still when he got stabbed, I was like, damn, like, no, <laughs> like Riff. Um, but I, yeah, I thought he was, he was great. And I, I really liked the change that they made in the song cool, you know, to make it just between him and Tony. And so I, I believe in the original, all the jets did it. Yeah. Um, and so making it a duet between them, I thought was a, a nice change up and really, you know, playing alongside El Gord's Tony, who is kind of like toned back. You can really see riffs like riffs. Don't do that, man. <laughs> <laughs> Yo riff. Don't do it. Um, <laughs> so who else stood out to you? Yeah, I think the other obvious uh, highlight is Ariana DeBose as Anita. Obviously, Anita in the original film was played by Rina Moreno, so tough shoes to follow. Uh, yeah. But Anita, uh, Ariana DeBose does have theater background as well. She was in the original Hamilton cast as part of the ensemble. And I think part of the reason that she's so good is that the script is getting punched up to kind of give her more, more work, and they really blow out the America uh, scene, which in general is already a show-stopping moment, but yep. in this version, they really make it eye-catching and like huge production values, similar to some of the da- the group dances and songs in In the Heights, for example. And yeah, I mean, I mean, her presence is so essential, but she's really a, a bigger character than Bernardo, honestly. Oh yeah, a hundred percent, and. I thought that America scene is that that's just the Emmy or the, uh, the Oscar reel right there, that whole yeah. thing. And you know, of course doing kind of, her own singing again as a theater person. Yeah. And, and obviously her own dancing as well. Um, you know, to Rita Moreno won, uh, I believe it was best supporting actress um, yeah. for her roles, Val- uh, Anita back in the day. So go, so anyone stepping into these shoes is going to, you know, be a little bit, a little bit behind the eight ball, but I thought Ariana DeBose was fantastic. Uh, the way she swished around that dress, similar to Rita Moreno, was incredible. Her dancing was amazing, but just her overall like 
presence in the movie. She, you know, and in one way had like the motherly presence, but in another way had like a very like edgy, like I'm making my own way. I loved in, in the, uh, was it the America scene or I can't remember when they were in the church praying and she kept, Oh no, it was tonight. Uh, yeah. And they were singing tonight and she keeps talking about like, you know, wanting to jump uh, Bernardo's bones in, in the church and they kept shushing her. I just thought she was like super magnetic in that scene. And just like, she really stood out to me from that. Um, but yeah, I agree. She was great. I also really liked David Alvarez as Bernardo. I thought he yeah. was a, a good, uh, I thought he matched Riff pretty well for the most part. So I thought that was great. And, you know, obviously he's, he's got to keep up with Ariana DeBose. So there, it takes something there for sure. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think in terms of, uh, changes to the film, I think one of the most meaningful and noticeable would be that when there's Spanish dialogue, it's not subtitled. And I really love that. Honestly. It's never a question of what they're talking about. Mood-wise, it's still communicated. And a lot of times they basically translate it in English in the next sentence or next few sentences anyway. As someone that knows a little bit of Spanish, that was really fun for me to try and like directly translate oh, it in my head <laughs> as they were talking. But I mean, I, I think that, that that's a really good job to highlight how, how uh, they're different. You know, again, in the movie, uh, the Sharks, the Puerto Rican characters... You know, they're a little bronzered up because they're not, none of them are Latino, Latinos. And there's way less Spanish in it. So I think that was a really important way to, you know, color in those characters. Uh, also, I have to say the, actually, I was ask you, how do you feel about the uh, Rita Moreno's new role in this? Obviously, the Doc character replaced with uh, Doc's widow, Valentina, played by, Rita Moreno, obviously, as we said, the original uh, Anita. And now, you know, at the end of the film, Valentina gets one of the key songs switched, passed over to her. How did you feel about that uh, That presence? Yeah, I want to start with the song first. I, I, liked, uh, I liked her getting a moment, right? A nod to an original from the, the 1961 film. Um, and I, and I thought she sang it okay. I, I do wish other members of the cast had gotten a chance to like sing maybe other parts of it or like it jumped around a little bit. But I didn't really have too much of a problem with her getting that. I, her as Valentina, I thought was like a nice presence, but overall, I wasn't totally like blown away by the part. Um, I agree. The, the change didn't really matter that much to me. I I guess she also gets the moment where she gets to like shame the the Jets when they you know are potentially going to rape uh, Anita. Yeah. Um, so I, I think she got a couple of, of solid moments, but to me, it didn't really matter too much, but it seems like you felt the same. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, yeah. What about, um, I wanted to see how you felt about Corey Stoll in this movie. <laughs> I, I don't know why. Something about the way he played this, I just found really funny. I, I don't yeah. know if it was his accent. I don't know if it was just his overall demeanor, but something felt little off to me but like not in like a horrible way sure yeah in general i'm a Corey Stoll fan but i don't remember is this a new character from the film because in a sense you're kind of like duplicating efforts with officer crumpke there's a song dedicated to officer crumpke in the police department which is an amazing moment do we really need a separate police figure with a lot of lines does that make any sense 
Yeah, so there, uh, Lieutenant Shrank was in the original played by Simon okay. Oakland, but I, I think it's he's supposed to just be more the like hard ass to Krupke's like, yeah, you know, yeah, goof. I guess he communicates the uh, impending doom that is the uh, raising of the West yeah. Side with the gentrification and everything. So that kind of puts that out in the open. But really, he's only in the beginning, you know. On the other hand, I kind of like how that scene unfolds because. Uh, you get a guy with a nail driven through his ear. They're, they're, yeah. they're, they don't really spill any blood in the original movie. No, so it definitely adds a bit more edge to it. Um, you know, just talking about changes. One thing I wanted to go back to, I forgot to ask. They they did change. Um, I feel pretty. You know, where I, I believe before it was like before they went out today, or before they went out to the dance, I think, and then they moved it towards right. the end of the film, right before. Uh, you know they. Maria finds out that Tony killed Bernardo. How did you feel about that change? Yeah, I guess I don't know the the text well enough to really notice the difference, but that is definitely a stark change. You're really saving to the last possible moment with that. I, I liked the change a lot because um, not only did it show, I think, how people within that community were making were working and a lot of them were in these like cleaning jobs um but it also just was like super fun to watch rachel ziegler dancing around this department store this like 1960s department store just looked really cool and she played it perfectly um and i i don't know if if that song adds a lot of meaning to the movie um you know in terms of like moving the plot along so um for me it didn't really it, I thought it was like a nice change just because it was different and looked cool. But uh, what else about the movie? I mean, well, what did you like? What didn't you like? Yeah, so I think this is kind of a key thing, right? West Side Story, all versions of it, the songs are tremendous. You know, mm-hmm. lyrics by Stephen Sondheim, who just recently passed away. The songs are tremendous, and so many of the songs really hit. Tonight, America, even something that's a little uh, uh, detoury like uh, Officer Crumpke, like th- there's just dynamite songs, even the Jet song. You know, you don't really like the Jets too much, but I really do like saying when you're a Jet, you're a Jet all the yeah, way. All like, the way. It's, just, it's just really catchy shit, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think all the production values, the acting, the songs really build up the film, build up the story. And they, 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 they that's kind of where you have to stand with. Do you care enough about the, some of the weaknesses of the story, of the plot? Maria and Tony, not the most interesting characters in the story and still not like super developed. You just kind of have to believe that these are star-crossed hormonal lovers. There's not logic with this. They just love each other. I think for some people, Maria still wanting to be with Tony after Tony kills Bernardo doesn't make any sense. And I think you just kind of have to accept this is Romeo and Juliet. And that they're just dumb kids. Yeah, I mean that that was that was my whole thing. I was thinking for the last like twenty minutes, like there's no way this relationship could ever work. Like, what are you guys right. doing? But yeah, you just kind of have to suspend uh, belief. I think a bit for that. A um, couple things I just wanted to like point out that I think obviously the, the 1961 is a classic, always going to be considered that way. But the, why I think this is like a better movie, technology's just come so far where 
you can like the the camera moved around so much in this movie and moved around with the dancing and it made it so much more engaging than just yes you know single camera in one place watching them dance around um really loved that and some of the the shots in this i mean if you look at the two backgrounds we have on youtube um one of them's at the dance and one of them is during america outside while uh, anita is dancing but just like the way the angles that Spielberg picked I you know I think about the the fight between the sharks and the jets near the end in that uh, salt warehouse and it's yeah. like shot overhead as they Top walk down with in. the shadows so good yeah, and the shadows walk towards each other just amazing stuff and there, there's just moments like that all throughout where Spielberg's eye is just you know he's he's still a master at this so uh really really uh engaging film uh music was good performances were good is this thing going to clean up at the Oscars again is this going to be 1962 Oscars all over. Yeah, so I, I mean, ten wins, eleven noms. I don't think we're going that far with any film this year, but I would definitely think Best Picture is one of the safer bets for this film. Honestly, mm-hmm. you know, it, it just it, it's been critically adored, and it's well known property to film fans. So I don't see why that would change. You know, it, it's definitely in that that mix. You know. Um, Spielberg director, I'd say very unlikely given how uh, busy that category is almost every year. I think, you know, so there's obviously probably some down ballot stuff that'll get noticed for music and production and costumes and stuff. But I think the key things to watch are Ziegler and Moreno performances. And Ziegler definitely seems like the more likely of the two, but Best Actress is also a uh, going to be a slugfest this year. There's a ton of ton of contenders. So yeah, I w- I'm not going to predict the best picture win right now, but I, I definitely think it'll be being nominated. And that's despite the poor box office. Yeah. I think this has a good chance to get a lot of love at the Oscars. I, I think you're right. No movie is probably ever going to do what uh, this movie did in 1961 again, but uh, I think there's a, a high chance that this movie will get a lot of nominations and probably a couple wins. So, yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's funny because I I don't think any of any of the male performances were that good. I mean, Feist was probably or Face was probably the closest one, but I don't think it'll yeah, be I agree. So, all right, well, I think that does it for us for this week, Dave. Uh, what should the people be watching or listening to for next week? Yeah, so we have a lot of big things right here before the holidays, right? I think Chief Among Them, Spider Man, No Way Home, finally coming out, all but assured to be the highest grossing domestic. Uh, film of the year we also have Guillermo del Toro's Nightmare Alley coming out his first film since The Shape of Water which of course won Best Picture and won del Toro Best Director a few years back we also have a movie I'm very excited for coming out on Wednesday on Netflix The Hand of God uh, the latest film from Paolo Sorrentino who we love so much from The Young Pope and The New Pope Uh, also Station Eleven on HBO Max the miniseries is kicking off Mackenzie Davis, the reviews are really strong on that. And Survivor Season 41, we haven't talked about it yet. It's about to air its finale, so I'm really excited to get into the new era uh, of Survivor. Absolutely. And uh, as Dave mentioned before, our best movie or best TV of the year will be coming out later this week, so stay tuned for that. Subscribe, youtube.com slash nostalgiapod, soundcloud.com slash nostalgiapod, and at nostalgiapod on Twitter. See you next week. Yeah.